On R2C2, CC Sabathia and Ryan Rucco guide listeners through everything going on in the MLB, NBA, and NFL. They also talk to friends, athletes, and celebrities about the world of sports and much more. Check out R2C2 with CC Sabathia and Ryan Rucco on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by 7-Eleven. What if I told you you could get a big snack almost anywhere for less than five bucks? Let's talk 7-Eleven's $3 big meal deal with seven rewards. Big meal deal is a big bite hot dog and a large big gulp drink, and you won't find a better snack deal anywhere else. Here's what I put on my hot dog. Mustard. And that's it. That's it. I love a hot dog with mustard. Maybe if the chili, if I'm feeling it, if I'm feeling crazy, maybe a little chili, maybe a little nacho cheese, but I'm a hot dog and mustard guy. But if that sounds like your kind of bite, visit 7-Eleven. Valid through 1725. 7-Eleven has the right to end this promotion early. Plus tax, applicable on large big gulp only. Participating U.S. stores only. See app for full terms. All rights reserved. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. Hello and welcome to the Ringer MLB show. My name is Michael Bauman and I'm a staff writer at the Ringer. Joining me today on this very special episode of the show on the fifth anniversary of Ass in the Jackpot Day, our Ringer staff writer, Zach Cram. Say hello, Zach. Hello. Happy fifth anniversary of the Asses in the Jackpot Day to you. I did not realize it had been that long. That makes me feel old. Ben, Ben Lindbergh, Ringer staff writer, uh, a blessed Ass in the Jackpot Day to you as well. And to you, sir. And yes, we're still waiting for umpires and managers to be mic'd up all the time, which I think we all hoped would come out of that wonderful moment with Terry Collins. But we're still waiting. It was one of those moments that it was awesome and in a way that we knew it was never going to happen again. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I'm pro umps being mic'd up. I think mm -hmm. so. I've watched a little bit of rugby and they have the the running commentary from their uh, their referee and rugby being a game with no rules. Uh, it's very helpful to have the the referee explain why he's making certain decisions. I think we could benefit from that in baseball, but yeah, unfortunately, we're going to have to uh, protect umpires from making or from talking like cops, basically. Uh, and I think we're all going to be worse off for it. As I understand it, rugby and also cricket also provide commentary during their replay reviews. So during the replay review, you get to hear the deliberations and you get to see the angles that they're reviewing, which is wonderful, I think, instead of just having broadcasters be in the dark speculating about what the umpires are looking at and just us staring at the guy who holds the headset, which is a great position, I think. But also it would be kind of cool to be party to those conversations. So I think that's something that we should consider also baseball could learn something from other sports it turns out or we could just eliminate replay reviews and avoid that problem entirely but i think that's an argument for another Ooh, episode pro uh, replay one, 
One thing I'm glad we had replay for was something I have in our rundown as Craig's boner, which I was trying to uh, trying to be clever and invoke the Fred Merkel play. Uh, and now it's just going to make my friendship with Craig Goldstein, editor in chief of baseball perspectives, very awkward going forward. Uh, this is one of the funniest things that's happened on a baseball diamond in quite some time. Uh, as is traditional, Zach, tell, tell the listeners what happened. Basically, there was a runner on base and two outs, and Javi Baez hit a routine ground ball to third base. Third baseman throws to Will Craig, the Pirates' first baseman who catches the ball a little ways up the baseline. Javi Baez decides to stop running to first and starts retreating to home plate as the Cubs run around third and steams toward home. Will Craig, instead of retreating to step on first base and get the force to end the inning, or instead of tagging Javi Baez or instead of just standing there because Baez cannot actually retreat all the way to home. He has to make it to first eventually. Uh, throws the ball home. The ball gets away from the catcher. The runner is safe at home. Javi Baez sprints toward first. The catcher throws in the vicinity of first base, but none of the Pirates were at first base, so the ball gets away. Javi Baez slides headfirst into first and is safe, runs towards second. The throw gets away there. Javi is safe at second. And if that explanation sounds confusing, that is because it is hard to really make sense of this play. It is unlike anything I have ever seen before. Maybe the dumbest MLB play I have ever seen. Scored a fielder's choice, which I think really captures the inadequacy of our vernacular to to capture a moment like that. So Will Craig did make it. Will Craig did make a choice. I will say that much. Yeah. The fielder made a choice. Yeah, I I do feel really bad for him because that's that's an all time brain fart maybe not in terms of stakes but in terms of like anyway we're going to do a quick three round draft of our favorite moments from this 40 second vignette this microcosm for human suffering that that we saw in a pirates game yesterday ben why don't you have the first pick well, I think this was definitely more of a, a boner than anything, even though it was sort of celebrated as Javi Baez inducing this play. I don't know that we can actually say that he did that, although he does reach on error a lot. He has reached on error 31 times since 2017. I saw baseball reference point out which leads or, or is second only to Elvis Andrews over that same span. And whether that is because he is a speedy right-handed hitter who hits a lot of ground balls or because he has some special ability to make fielders screw up, I don't know. But I think the highlight of this play was him waving the, the runner in and then declaring him safe before himself proceeding back to first and then ultimately to second and ultimately scoring himself. But that was the best, I think, that... He took the time to make the safe sign for that runner before he then proceeded to to first base himself. That he had the, the presence of mind to do that and that he <laughs> felt like at liberty to do that while he was very much still in jeopardy, but not really. Like by that point, the Pirates had every opportunity to get him out and they just opted not to over and over and over again. So he just felt like, yeah, I'll take my time. I will declare the safe sign here. It's like in the in the nice guys when Ryan Gosling falls off the roof into the pool and then decides that this means he's immortal and he can't die. Right. Um, I don't know if that's presence of mind. Like there's a full beat where like he has no idea where he is. He's never done this before, like in a on a baseball diamond. And so he has no idea how to behave. And so and then he realizes that he has to run to first base. That was first on my board, too. Yeah. Quote from Javi after the game. When I called him safe, I remembered that I still had to go back to first. 
<laughs> I was pretty tired. <laughs> okay, Zach, your turn. What do you have? So I'm going to take a, a dark horse here uh, because I had the same number one as you and Ben. I'm going to take something I did not see the first 20 or so times I watched this play, but then I saw in the reverse angle after Javi declares Contreras safe and he starts running toward first. The first base coach is windmilling his arms to get Javi toward first base. And I have never before <laughs> seen a first base coach windmilling his arms like that. Usually I think, you know, a first base coach isn't really doing all that much. It's the third base coach who has to make the hard decisions because the runner's back is to the outfield. The first base coach, I have never seen windmill his arms to get a guy to run toward first before. And that was just, you know, 20 seconds into the play already. So I'm going to take that as my first pick. All right. My first pick, I didn't think this would still be on the board, uh, but the screenshot of Anthony Rizzo bent over the dugout railing, holding his stomach as he's laughing so hard. My barometer for a crossover moment in baseball is whether Shea Serrano tweets about it. If it gets to Shea, you know it's big. And he almost immediately tweeted out that screenshot. And that's how I knew that this was going to be the story of the day. I mean, it's just a... It's a great reaction moment that I think is going to have some legs. Well, I think I will take the Pirates radio broadcast call of this play, which made the (laughs) rounds. Uh, I think the the highlight was, what a loony play. play. Tag him, tag him. Tag him quickly. And what did Craig do there? They got to run out of that. And now they got to get the out at first. And they throw it into right field. That's going to get a run for the Cubs. Oh, my, what a loony play, and he's in at second base. Just tag him out. What was that? The Cubs are going to get a run, and Baez is safe. And he's in at second base. Just tag him out. What was that? The Cubs are going to get a run, and Baez is safe at second base on a routine ground out to third. And I think it makes it even better that it's coming from the team that is uh, allowing this to happen, the Pirates, and, you know, being critical of of their own player. So it's not just someone getting excited about something with the Cubs uh, going well. It's the Pirates, long-suffering, probably Pirates broadcasters. And, and the Pirates season hasn't been as atrocious as I think it was expected to be up until this point. But they made up for it in a single play, I think. And the radio broadcast call captured that. For my second pick, I think I'm going to take... The fact that Will Craig in 2019 won a minor league gold glove award. And Mike, you mentioned this earlier. I do feel bad for Will Craig. Obviously, this was an all-time brain fart. He should have just stepped on first, but he didn't. And sometimes you forget in the moment and you make dumb mistakes. I make dumb mistakes every day of my life. But those dumb mistakes are not then viewed by millions of people online, and those dumb oh, mistakes. I think a lot do not... of people do listen to this <laughs> podcast, Zach. So don't sell yourself short. I didn't say they're on this podcast, uh, but they do not then define me. Whereas I think about players like Ruben Rivera. What's the first thought that most baseball fans probably have when they hear the name Ruben Rivera is the base running play, and I think that is true of a lot of all-time classic blunders, and this might top them all. So I feel bad for Will Craig, but the fact that he won the 2019 first base minor league gold glove award really kind of underscores how strange this play was because he's not a bad fielder. It was more of just a mental block than anything else. I mean, the minor league gold glove to go with the 
celebrated two-way career at Wake Forest. Ben, you'll like that. <laughs> the other minor league gold glove winners that year, Nick Madrigal won at second base. Cabrian Hayes, uh, Craig's teammate in Pittsburgh, won at third base. So these are really fun players, really good players. But unfortunately, I think this single play is going to follow Craig forever. All right. My second round pick is going to be, it's the cousin of the first pick. There's a moment and it's subtle where you can see Javi Baez start. This starts is what you see three times a game where Javi Baez just stopped running and was going to force Craig to tag him out. And he just sort of starts backpedaling towards home plate. And then there's a moment where he realizes that Craig is actually following him back home and he's going to be able to uh, to stay in that run. I mean, it's not even a rundown. He's just going to be able to stay out of reach long enough to give Contreras time to come around to score. Uh, and I think like there's disbelief emanating from Baez himself is like, this is actually happening. I think that's a, a really nice moment very early in this clip. Yeah. And if we're going to give Baez credit for any of this, as opposed to chalking it up to Craig's incompetence, then I think it would be for running backward because most runners would not do that. And most first basemen would not take the bait either. But still, the fact that he started running backward instead of just accepting the out, maybe that is what set Baez apart here and enabled this play to happen. So I think for my last pick, I'm going to take the moment really where the die was cast, where there was no coming back from this. And that is when Craig (laughs) flipped the ball to the catcher. And it it was such a moment of futility because the, the runner Contreras was basically already in there. So it was too late to flip. But really, up until that flip, this could have been salvaged. And you might have figured, oh, maybe he's just toying with Baez for some reason. But, you know, you could run him all the way back to home plate. He would have been out. You could have tagged him at any point. That would have been out. Like every moment of this play could tie for first in this draft because at any moment, Craig could have decided to just retreat to the bag and force him out. And that would have ended all of it. And that's why I think it is better to call it Craig's boner than Craig's muff, for instance, because it's not that he dropped the ball, at least not figuratively or figuratively. He he definitely did drop the ball, but really it was a error of, of commission and, and, you know, making mental mistakes. But that was the moment I think where, oh, okay, well, he is fully duped and now he can't just retreat to the bag or tag Baez because he no longer has the ball. And I think I will maybe cheat, but build off that for my last pick. And I'm going to take the image of all four players, the two runners and the two fielders, all packed very tightly together because I think that image made me realize that whenever that many players are so close to each other on a diamond, something weird is happening. A baseball field is pretty big. The fielders are spread out. The base runners are typically spread out. You don't see four players converging on one base ever unless something is weird, like when two runners go to the same base or uh, the opening scene of the movie Little Big League when three runners end up at the same base and you have three runners in the fielder all in one position. Same thing happened to the Brooklyn Dodgers in 1926. Thank you, Mike. And the the just any circumstance in which you end up with multiple fielders and multiple batters at the same base, or really just multiple runners at the same base, you know something weird is going to happen that lights up the part of my brain that delights at such... Uh, baseball oddities. And I think this image, which led a number of stories about this play for good reason, really symbolizes in one single image the strangeness going on because you don't really see two base runners converging on a base like this, especially home. I've, I've never seen it happen 
at home before, but really any base unless something weird is about to happen that is going to lead to a funny umpiring or scoring decision. All right, I'm going to wrap up the draft. I considered picking the second viewing, which is when I realized that all this was happening with two outs, which is something that I don't think anybody picked up first time around. It makes it all the funnier. Um, But I'm going to go with Keith Olbermann's meltdown May moment where he said, you guys are think think that Javi Baez invented baseball, but Germany Schaefer did this in whatever it was. And first of all, Germany Schaefer didn't do this. Germany Schaefer stole second base and then on the next pitch went back to first and then went to second base. But I get I get where Keith Olbermann's coming from in two in two respects. One, the Javi Baez between the tags and the base running play and the plays and the the sliding has a reputation for magic uh on a baseball diamond that's it's his perhaps nickname. yeah well it's i think it's it's overstated and sometimes i find that discourse a, a little uh, uh a little annoying but also the impulse to say that all of this has happened before and all of this has happened will happen again certainly that we're no strangers to that on this podcast considering how much we've talked about curly ogden and Buck, uh, bucky harris over the past couple years um probably more than anybody who's not a direct descendant of Curly Ogden and Bucky Harris has talked about those, uh, those two members of the 1924 Washington senators, but there's a way to do it with where you're like, Oh, this is a historical precedent. Isn't this cool? As opposed to kids these days, back when I was dodging mustard gas canisters in the battle of Passchendaele, things were better and everybody's soft. Now spare me. So, but it was, again, a great signifier of cultural penetration for, for this uh, bizarre moment in baseball history. Jedi are being murdered. Now streaming, Star Wars Returns, only on Disney+. Plus. I didn't do it, believe me! She was my student. Let me be the one to bring her in. Now she is a student of the dark side. An acolyte. Star Wars The Acolyte. New episodes Tuesdays, only on Disney+. Plus. Let's wrap up our discussion of Craig's boner with this question. Is it worse than 2012 Astro's doc gif? Zach, what do you say? I think clearly, because any other play you're going to compare this to mostly involved a physical error and what happened with the 2012 Astros play that Mike is referencing is the guys just ran into each other essentially and threw wildly but it didn't involve sort of the protracted mental aspect of this blunder that I think makes for a lot of other bloopers like in my mind I also compare this to the 2018 Jonathan Lucroy Alex Bregman play that walked off a win for the Astros when Bregman hit the ball like six inches in front of home plate. Luke Ray picked it up and missed the tag and then threw it off of Bregman's helmet. But again, that involves kind of snap decisions as did the Astros play. This involved a very slow chase up the first baseline and it unfolded in multiple acts that I think the Astros played did not. 
Yeah, I think this play requires more knowledge and context to truly expose the incompetence on display. Like anyone can appreciate just people throwing the ball all over the field and running into each other. Like you don't need to know anything about baseball to understand that things had gone horribly wrong in the 2012 Astros play. Whereas in this one, like you under you need to understand the rules and like, okay, it's two outs and here's what Craig could have done and here's how force plays work. So I think there's a, a little more kind of understanding institutional knowledge required but if you have that knowledge (laughs) then this totally stands out and is a -a one-of-a-kind play and is i think more singular and more inexplicable than the astros play which was just hey that's a bad team they made some physical mistakes this is just a -a one-of-a-kind mental mistake well it was a bad team but you've got future al mvp jose altuve in that play you've got gamecock legend and future world series mvp steve pearson on that play (laughs) yeah this one this like just brought all of my worst baseball playing memories to the fore this was like my worst nightmare when i was a kid playing baseball you know how you're taught to like review okay where's the play before every pitch and that was like my nightmares that i would throw the ball to the wrong base or i'd forget where the force was or whatever i'd just do something like more so than just missing the ball or whatever i was worried about just doing something dumb and this was that (laughs) so i feel bad for craig but that makes this play stand out I don't think it takes that much institutional knowledge. First of all, I think there's plenty of throwing the ball around in this play True. Uh, for the pure comedic uh, element. But two, all you need to know is that every out of first base is a force out. And I think anybody who knows enough to recognize this as baseball is going to know that uh, Craig could have just taken two steps back and stepped on the bag. Uh, you think so, so, but Craig didn't know that. Man, that poor guy. Somebody <laughs> like just wrap him in a blanket and give him a hug. Like that's, I I guess that's not like an emotion you want your first baseman to inspire, but I do feel really bad for him as we've spent the past 24 hours now (laughs) laughing at him. I hope he does something in his career to push this out of the most prominent position. Like the, the first sentence in his baseball obituary. I don't know what that would have to be. It would have to be pretty impressive to displace this. But somehow, I hope he does that. I hope he gets yeah, you, like the game-winning World Series hit, you know, which would require the Pirates making a World Series or him being on another team or something. But I hope that happens for him. He could be the World Series MVP. It's not every day that you see something happen that you know is going to be an instant classic. And that's one of them. I'm really grateful that we got to share this moment together. Uh, so, but for the meat and potatoes of this episode, we're going to welcome back our injury expert, Dr. Robert, uh, to talk about all the Mets are on the shelf. Uh, I'll just quote quickly from the ESPN AP report uh, about Noah Syndergaard having a setback. Syndergaard is one of several Mets on the injured list and one of four pitchers, along with Carlos Carrasco, right hamstring, Taiwan Walker, uh, right side, and Jordan Yamamoto, right shoulder. Good on Jordan Yamamoto for getting looped into that group. Uh, Crasco, who's expected to be serves the Mets number two pitcher in Syndergaard's absence is on the 60 day IL and it's not expected to return until at least July. He makes by my count, 17 Mets players on the injured list is the, at the moment to the point where we're considering running out of space on the 40 man roster. There are so many Mets players on the shelf right now, Bobby, you talked about the importance of drinking water. I did last week's show. I sure did. Is Steve Cohen so thirsty that he's causing 
dehydration-related muscle strains throughout his big league roster. I have nothing to explain it. I don't think the elixir of water can help these guys at this point. But what I will say is, well, first of all, I wanted to add Taiwan Walker coming off the injured list today to make a start. So he will be off that list very shortly, um, thankfully. I, I like that his injury is listed as right side. That's about my level of medical expertise that you have roped me into somehow talking on like five well, straight that's, podcasts. That's why you're our, our internist, Dr. Robert. Exactly. Um, I will say that this has sort of been a paradigm shift for my Mets fandom. Now I'm like thrilled anytime they do something good because it's not, you know, $341 million Francisco Lindor coming through with a hit. It's Brandon Drury, who I didn't even know was on the Mets until about two weeks ago. So uh, I don't really have any medical analysis for this team right now. It seems like they're under some sort of uh, curse at the moment, but we'll see if they can break through that. At the That's moment and for the past several seasons. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm glad when I hear a Mets fan saying the Mets are cursed, I the first person I want to hear from is is Ben Lindbergh, the expert on <laughs> how cursed the Mets are. Yeah, I have downplayed the degree to which the Mets are actually worse than the rest of the league. But uh, right now, no one can compare to them in the number of injured players. And yet, you know what? They're in first place, right? <laughs> Last time I checked. Exactly. The so paradigm shift. That's the kind of thing that I talk about with the Mets. It's like, yeah, everything goes wrong for them. And yet they are still more successful than a lot of other teams that don't have the reputation for being cursed and incompetent. In New and, York. Yeah. I mean, I know there are different standards, big market. You should have a higher payroll, et cetera, et cetera. But that's kind of my my fundamental disagreement with the whole, you know, Mets are Mets can't get out of their own way sort of narrative. There's a lot of truth to it. But a lot of it is like, you know, PR and messaging, which uh, they are truly terrible at, especially when it comes to injuries and uh, trying to tell the public whether injuries are going to be severe or not, which I still can't decide whether they just don't know and they are terrible at evaluating injuries or whether they just kind of have a, a team policy of let's just say that no injury is serious and then most of them turn out to be. But that was repeated again with Noah Syndergaard where it was, oh, yeah, he was removed from a start. It's not a big deal. He's not even sore. And then suddenly it's, oh, he's out for six weeks. Syndergaard is going to be a fascinating free agent case next winter because he didn't pitch at all last year. And at this point, I would not he wager. He basically hasn't pitched since the asses in the jackpot game. <laughs> it's an incident he, of course, set off by throwing at Chase Utley. Yeah. Syndergaard, uh, I would not wager on throwing any innings this year because if he shut down for six weeks, then that'll require something like six more weeks to ramp back up, which takes you basically to September. So that'll be a really interesting free agent case. I think the odd part about the Mets is how many remember some guys are now populating their lineup in one of their games in the doubleheader yesterday. Starting in the cleanup spot, they had Billy McKinney, who was designated for assignment by Milwaukee last week before a trade. He's a superstar they, in that lineup right now. <laughs> he looks unbelievable. They had Tomas Nito in the five spot, and he's hitting well this year, but he's also a backup catcher. They had Mike Jury hitting sixth. They had Jose Peraza hitting seventh, and they had Cameron Mabin hitting eighth in front of the pitcher. So I think this gets at a broader point I wanted to make about the league, because while the Mets have perhaps been hit hardest, Almost every lineup I look at nowadays is terrible in spots six to nine because there have been so many injuries, depending on how you measure them and what basis of comparison you're looking at. I think there's been roughly a 20 to 30% increase in injuries 
over a normal season at this point. And that's especially true of soft tissue injuries, uh, probably just because of the shortened 2020 season and the disruption to players' routines. But it's really affecting the league and basically every game I watch on a day-to-day basis. Maybe not to the Mets extreme, but like the Phillies yesterday had Brad Miller hitting six, though Dubal Herrera hitting cleanup, and then six to nine was Joyce, Torres, Marchand, and a pitcher. So it's the Mets, it's the Phillies, it's Cleveland, it's the Yankees, it's basically everyone. Yeah, the Phillies are platooning Brad Miller with like four different right-handed hitters at once. I'm not really sure how they're getting him in the lineup three times a night, but it's very bizarre. Um, Going back to Billy McKinney, I'm not going to ask Zach this question because I assume Zach knows everything. But Ben, how old do you think Billy McKinney is? 29. Bobby? I was going to say 31. Yeah, I was going to say 32. He's 26. Whoa. Jeez. He was part of the... the Addison Russell trade, the Glaber uh, Torres trade, the Jay Happ trade. He's been in a lot of big moves. He's like on a Zach Greinke level of traded for guys. This is something that that I might do later in the year is like see who's been traded for the most guys. Yeah, uh, he is cause... the replacement level player <laughs> du jour right now. He is right. just the replacement player. I think he is... wasn't uh, didn't the Yankees add Billy McKinney too when they had a similar injury issue? That was so... the uh, uh, the hap trade with Brandon Drury. Now mm-hmm. apparently of the Mets. Um, yeah, Would that be Billy a fun McKinney... title belt as, uh, article for Zach to write, like he did for the reliever title belt. Is the replacement player title belt of each year and go through and see who was the most average player. Well, what I was going to say is he is like he might as well be and prospects because that's every trade that gets mooted on the Internet is player X, player Y and prospects. And Billy McKinney has somehow been that 14 different times in his career. But he used to be you know, the prospect, <laughs> but that was a while ago. Yeah. Is he still? He's, no, he's got too much. OK, I no, thought but, for a second he, he might like, still be you know, rookie eligible. But. He was a top 100 guy for a while, but those days are behind him. But yeah, it's not just anecdotal, all of these injuries. It it really is happening. And Baseball Prospectus just rolled out a new tool, the injured list ledger this week. Great timing. I've been getting a lot of use out of that. And just <laughs> looking at it, they have uh, something called the Hurt Scale, which just shows how many injured players there shows are. how much Frank team. Thomas weighs at any given moment. <laughs> <laughs> that can't be measured. That is an infinite number. But the Mets are on top with 17, as you said. But... 10 teams now have at least double-digit players on the IL. It's the Mets, the Mariners, the Dodgers, the Padres, the Cubs, the Pirates, the Giants, the Rays, the Rangers, the Blue Jays, all have 10 or more players on the IL. Diamondbacks and Astros are, are right behind them at nine. And Derek Rhodes, who supplies the data for that tool, he tweeted on Wednesday that through Tuesday, MLB IL placements were up 30% compared to 2019. That does not include COVID-related placements. And then he tweeted on Thursday that the number of players on the IL, which at the time was 242 players league-wide, had already surpassed the peak number of players on the IL in either 2019 or 2020. So injuries are absolutely up. And it is partly pitchers. I I also saw that there have been 19 Tommy John surgeries to MLB players already this season, which is the same number as in all of 2019, although TJs tend to get clustered early in the season. But 
it's also hitters and soft tissue injuries. And if it is skewing toward hitters, maybe that's even exacerbating the offensive decline. You know, you take Mike Trout out of the lineup, then that lowers the league-wide batting average even more. But it's a bummer because a lot of great players are out of commission and we don't get to watch them. And I don't know exactly what to attribute it to. Like, I think this is kind of a long-term trend, just seeing more IL placements. And that could be because you have shorter IL stints now with the 10-day or maybe it's precautionary. Maybe it's the way that teams are shuffling their rosters around and kind of getting fresh bodies in constantly. It's probably a little bit of that. And maybe it's also the max effort everything, throwing as hard as you can at all times, swinging as hard as you can at all times. And a lot of it just has to be pandemic related. And I don't know how much to chalk that up to. Like last year, when we saw all the pitcher injuries early on, that really seemed to be clearly related to just the abbreviated spring training and then the shutdown and then the summer camp and then the short season. Everything was weird. And I guess everything is still weird. And you would think that maybe if if players just weren't accustomed to the same workloads and weren't built up to the same extent that maybe the injuries would manifest themselves later in the year. So I don't know whether we're in for even worse ahead or whether it just screwed up everyone's training routines to such an extent that it's already having an effect. And I guess one more factor I should mention is that rosters are bigger, right? I mean, you have 26-man rosters now, and you had even bigger rosters last year. So you might see some guys going on the MLB IL who in the past just would have been in the minors. And so more players, more injuries, that could play a part of it. But I don't think that explains all or most of it. There are more factors here. That Yeah, that's... What I'm having trouble squaring is I don't really know where this is coming from because you look at what's different. And like you said, Ben, the the pandemic screwing up training regimens, but I can't imagine it's doing that much. The other I mean, the other thing is that every relief pitcher in the league is Jose Alvarado now where you just crank it up to uh, 98 name for the middle of the zone and hope for the best. And those guys are getting hurt and we're, you know, teams are cycling right. through them more. And but sometimes that, those guys hit people in the face and hit by pitch rates are higher than yeah, they've ever been. True. So that contributes to this too. Yeah. But neither of those captures the, the bigness of the, of the numbers that we're seeing. Both of those seem kind of inadequate in terms of explanations. Pram, you're think, the last person to go, so you're going to be brave enough to say that guys just don't play through enough injuries these days? You're going to be bold enough to get that? He's already had so his soft. one old, thought, one old thought man warrior take out there. Is that your Dr. Bob diagnosis? <laughs> That's my Dr. Bob diagnosis. More water and just be a little tougher. And rub some dirt on it. I think also sometimes just looking at the sheer number of players on the injured list can overstate the impact a bit. You know, if it's a lot of like quad A guys who have hit the injured list, it might not affect the on-field product as much, even if it sucks that they're hurt. But there are a lot of really notable players hurt right now. Just in preparation for the segment, I started making a list of guys whose absences really mattered to their teams, and I ended up 60 deep. So I'm going to speed read it now just to to underscore. You do it to the tune of I am the very model of a modern major general? <laughs> I do not think. I can do that. I don't know that tune. Uh, but here we go. Mike Trout, Framber Valdez, Jake Odorizzi, Lance McCullers, Jose Arquiti, Jesus Lazardo, Marcelo Zuna, Oscar Inoa, Travis Darno, George Springer, Kevin Biggio, Carlos Martinez, Paul DeYoung, Harrison Bader, 
Jordan Hicks, Jason Hayward, Zach Gallen, Cody Bellinger, Bruce R. Gratterall, AJ Pollock, Corey Seager, Dustin May, Brandon Belt, Fran Reyes, Zach Plezak, Roberto Perez, Marco Gonzalez, Relief Ace, Kendall Graveman, Starling Marte, Brian Anderson, J.D. Davis, Brandon Nimmo, Michael Conforto, Jeff McNeil, Taiwan Walker, Pete Alonso, Carlos Carrasco, Victor Robles, Will Harris, Austin Hayes, Drew Pomeranz, Trent Grisham, Cabrian Hayes, D.D. Gregorius, J.T. Real Muto, Bryce Harper, seemingly every pitcher on the Rays besides Tyler Glasnow, Joey Votto, Mike Moustakas, Nick Senzel, Danny Duffy, Byron Buxton, Kent Maeda, Luis Arise, Loy Jimenez, Luis Robert, Aaron Hicks, Giancarlo Stanton, Corey Kluber, Luke Voigt. And that does not even include pitchers like Chris Sale, Luis Severino, Noah Syndergaard, who we knew would be out for extended periods of time. Those are all pitchers and hitters who have been injured since like March. And Man. that is a lot of really good we players. We didn't start the fire. I was fire. just going to say that 2021, <laughs> we didn't start the fire. Sucks. <laughs> but the other, I think, broader point I want to make beyond this sucks is we talk seemingly every week about pushing the mound back and one of the biggest pushbacks to pushing the mound back is the potential for injuries but we are here pitchers are getting hurt every single day throwing from 60 feet six inches and maybe going back to 61 feet six inches would significantly exacerbate that but it's kind of hard for me to imagine that because it's not as if the current regime is producing pristine health with any team in the league yeah i first of all i think we should add reading long lists of names as our new segment on the show. We should bring that back every week. I also I think that uh, it's odd because there's so much attention being paid now to health and to sports science and to high performance. Teams are investing so much in those departments. And it's kind of been like the go-to answer whenever anyone, at least with a team, is asked, like, what's the new money ball or what's the next market inefficiency or whatever? It's been like for a decade or two now, everyone would say, oh, injuries, you know, injury prevention, injury treatment. If you could save the enormous amounts of money that teams spend on players who are on the IL every year, or if you could have their production, then that would be an enormous benefit. And teams are like pouring resources into that area and it doesn't seem to be producing any effect. And there is a lot of snake oil, certainly. And I don't know if uh, any of you read the Noah Syndergaard GQ interview recently where he talks about how he turns his Wi-Fi off every night. Yeah, because... I was going to say, I didn't read it because I turned my <laughs> Wi-Fi off at night. Yeah, he's worried that the dirty signals will damage his mitochondria or, or whatever, and that was just the tip of the iceberg. So I guess he forgot to turn his Anything Wi-Fi off. Anything the... off Jordan Peterson's website. <laughs> the the night before he, uh, he, he was pulled from that start. But, you this know, is worse than it... when you read all of the Mets injured players off. That was just so <laughs> tough to hear right there. Some of it is that, but a lot of it, there is actual science to it. And so I'm sort of waiting for that to be reflected in these numbers. And it's just not. And whether it's precautionary or load management related or whether it's just like there's so many injuries now that benches are so short that if anyone has a bruise or something, you have to put them on the aisle just so you can get a warm body in there. Like it seems to just be a, a self-reinforcing trend. And, and we've seen these injury rates keep climbing even as the technology and, and the training methods and the nutrition and all of that have seemingly improved. So it's kind of a paradox and, and a quandary. Yeah. I think that's a great point because if nothing else, it illustrates why Ben only answers Slack at weird hours of the day and night because he's in a Faraday cage 21 hours a day to block the harmful 5G signals. I'm not on the IL. I'm uninjured. I know. You're yeah. the picture of health, man. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. 
I was traveling internationally last year. I was in Mallorca. I didn't know the island well. I said, let me head to the north, head towards the water. Let me go on Hotels.com and see what they have available. Something preferably on the beach, maybe even a gym. Not only did I get those things, there was a kid's session with exercise, gymnastics in the water, pony rides, a train. It had everything, and I didn't even want any of those things. But at least I knew they were there just in case I changed my mind. And now finding the perfect hotel has never been easier thanks to the Hotels.com app. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly, right, all-inclusive or a relaxing spa weekend, you can find exactly what you need and compare hotel prices, ratings, and amenities side by side. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app. This episode is brought to you by Thomas's. Thomas's presents Technique with Tom. Slicing an English muffin with a butter blade? Boulder Dash. Just pull apart with your hands and marvel in the nooks and crannies splendor. For each one is unique like a snowflake. Thomas's. Huzzah! A toast to breakfast. All right. Uh, one thing to, to note about the, the Phillies injury problems is that uh, apparently it's now state policy for, for us not to know about it. The Phillies have weathered this clumsily, I would say. They... Part of the reason that they've got Ronald Torres in the lineup and Odubel Herrera hitting fourth and so on is I would argue their three best position players are all hurt and two of them uh, have just sort of been on the bench not playing and taking up a roster spot. And when pressed about it yesterday, Phillies manager Joe Girardi uh, demurred. Ben, is that how you would you would describe that? Yeah, I might say dissembled. So he recently admitted that he had essentially hidden the extent of an injury to Bryce Harper, who went on the IL after Girardi implied that that wouldn't happen or that he was fine and didn't explain why he wasn't starting. And then he refused to explain a tactical decision. He did demur about that. And he said that uh, from now on, it's basically organizational policy that they're just not going to explain those moves, that they're just going to say it was a manager's decision, which was technically true, I guess. So Gabe Kapler wishes he would have thought of this. How did he this happen to... <laughs> after they fired Gabe Kapler? <laughs> yeah. That's what I want to know. <laughs> right. So in a sense, like the Mets have been doing this for years, as we just covered, just, you know, misleading the media about the extent of injuries. But with them, it wasn't clear whether it was intentional or just because they were equally in the dark. The Phillies are just coming out and saying, yeah, we're doing this because we think it's a competitive advantage. And that is Girardi's justification for it's this. Competitive that, advantage to run a two-man bench. <laughs> yeah, right. To, to carry an injured player who can't play. Not that part so much, but just not letting opposing managers know who's available or who isn't or why they're making moves or why they're not. And when he was hired, Girardi said, I'm going to tell you the truth all the time. So a lot of people are <laughs> dredging up that quote. Now that he has uh, said explicitly the opposite and Girardi had some Belichickian tendencies with the Yankees too. As I recall, he would at times hide or downplay injuries or, you know, decline to explain moves like uh, famously or memorably to me, at least he once made a mid plate appearance pitching change and just said that the explanation was strategy and he did not elaborate on it beyond that. So you know, I know that this happens in other sports sometimes, but I wonder whether in baseball it really is a significant competitive advantage. You know, are, are you game planning so much for who's available in the other guy's bullpen or bench? Like, does it 
really change your preparation that much. And to me, I think, you know, the Phillies are a game under 500, as always, (laughs) as we speak. And that I guess you could say that that makes this sort of competitive advantage, if it is a competitive advantage, more important because everyone matters. But it's also, I think, 10 times funnier when a team that sort of sucks <laughs> is like, <It's> a... <laughs> like, in, yeah. it, you know, when Belichick did it, like at least he's winning Super Bowls every year and you could say, oh, there's a method to his madness and he's exploiting every edge when the Phillies wow. do it. And they're still under 500. It's just like 10 times funnier, I think. Well, so I, I, you come to the ring MLB show are... and think you're safe from Belichick praise. And then here <laughs> yeah. comes Ben, big Belichick <laughs> fan. I didn't even know. <laughs> Neither did I until this segment. But I didn't know you knew who Bill Belichick was. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I know a lot of things. I, I'm interested to see if this gambit, you know, you can get away with that in a one horse town like New York, but he's in a big market now with a nasty <laughs> local media. So we'll see if. If this is tenable from a, a long-term perspective, my commentary is to appropriate a, another Girardiism. It's not what you want, yeah. and I think one interesting wrinkle here that I don't know enough to really speak intelligently about is how it affects gambling as MLB embraces wagering with open arms. It we feels don't have like, time to do the whole gambling thing, Zach. It, yeah, it just save it, that for another show. Just feels like that would affect how uh, the league might mandate reporting of injuries as it tries to to embark on this grand new frontier uh, mm-hmm. in sports wagering. And you would think that like, if Bryce Harper is unavailable on a certain day, that could affect things. Yeah. Uh, but you know, who knows how that will unfold. I was going to bring up that same point, but also one larger point and not to get too think PC about this, but I think this does kind of fit into the larger narrative about media access to teams and to clubhouses and to players, which is always something that causes a lot of hand wringing, at least among media members. So this is probably easier to pull off in the Zoom world than it would be if yeah. you're face-to-face 100%. with the manager and coaches and players every day. Like, and you know, when your players are in the clubhouse. Exactly. And, and you can ask them, hey, how are you them? feeling? Yeah. Or you can see them getting treatment potentially or you know, rubbing their injured wrist or whatever it is. It's just harder to hide these things. And so you know, are we, as we kind of return to normality, are we going to be back in clubhouses? Will this sort of thing be harder to pull off? Or will the lack of access over the last year and a half or so just become permanent, which I think has been a, a fear for a lot of media members. And, you know, there are these larger, I think, concerns about lack of access that are spreading from other sports where things have been, in some cases, even more restrictive than they have been in baseball. Tennis? Well, yeah. Tennis reference on the show? That came up this week, too, right, with Naomi Osaka, right, who announced that she's not going to be doing press during the French Open. And there's nothing the media likes to dump on more than someone not talking to the media. I mean, that is the cardinal sin, right? Well, I, so I think there's a legitimate gripe about that without getting hand-wringy and insular and media talking about the media. I think you do lose something that when all access to an athlete or a team is directed by the athlete or the, or the team and there's you know no independent access to to the athlete true but, yeah i mean we're in this world at the same time i don't think it's the end of the world that naomi osaka's not talking to the press for no and, and in her case you know she says she's doing it be, for mental health reasons that it, it takes a mental toll on her to answer these questions which you know far be it for me to say that that's not the case although certainly some media members uh disputed that but 
I think there is this larger concern just because of social media and the fact that athletes and and to some extent teams and leagues don't need media the way that they used to to get the word out and to advertise their product. They can go to fans directly. And I agree that there's still something lost and there are stories that aren't told and there are relationships that aren't built there. And this is somewhat self-serving, you know, not that the three of us are in clubhouses every day or, or on a beat, but we do go to clubhouses sometimes and talk to players sometimes. And so having that access can be a benefit, but I think it can, at least in some cases, serve the fans and serve the players to have someone telling those stories and framing them in a certain way. And so, you know, we would lose something at the same time. I feel bad about saying, oh, yeah, you know, the the players have to talk to the press at all times. Like that's their number one responsibility. You know, they are entertainers and they're putting on a show. And what happens after that and whether they answer questions about it is less important to a lot of people other than media members and and less important to me, too. And, And there's this idea of like, oh, accountability and you have to stand up there and answer questions like I didn't see Will Craig explain his rationale if he had one for that play i don't think he talked to the media or if he did i didn't see any comments reported and that's kind of one of those cases where it's like oh you know if you blow the game if you make the big error you gotta stand at your locker after the game and you gotta face the press and all of that and really you know how often do you get illuminating answers from that how often do those press conferences or those interviews actually improve our understanding of the play you you just tend to get recycled clichés or if it's a case like Craig where it's just obviously like a mental lapse and a brain fart like that's what he's going to say <laughs> basically it's not like oh i didn't know how force plays work or you know i thought baseball rules worked a different way no it was just a mistake and and that's what you're going to get so i think in a lot of cases it's overblown And the idea that, you know, a lot of those interviews are just, yeah, I'm just trying to put a good swing on it and, you know, take it day by day and help the team any way I can. So there's a lot of cliches that we will miss out. There's also some interesting stuff and some personalities that we won't know about. So it's hard for me to fault any individual athlete for not doing those things. And I certainly understand why answering the same questions over and over again would be tiresome. But I do think there would be something lost if there's no access going forward. So that's kind of the context that I was thinking about this Girardi controversy in. All right. Well, that's some good stuff from uh, the ringers, Brian Curtis. Uh, Let's move on to. uh, (laughs) Thanks for listening to the press box. Yeah. uh, Ben, do you have time to do the the cherry picking stats thing? Yep. Or do you want to go straight? Okay. All right. So one thing that, that I've noticed or all of us have noticed early in this season is a proliferation of stats and not just like weighted runs created or or win probability or spin rate or any of the the fun stuff like trivia so uh we've been talking about this all week ben here's something that that i've discovered that you might find interesting okay uh and might refute some of your prejudices about pitchers hitting did you know that there were eight players this year so far, and we're just at the NMA with at least 100 plate appearances, an OPS plus of at least 100, and at least one pitching appearance. And that's the second most in any season since integration. Hmm. How about that? That's a fun fact. Yeah, I, well, fun fact reminds me that, that you've been distinguishing between statistics and fun facts yes. uh, since time immemorial. So, mm-hmm. yeah, so I guess we're the ones who are late to the party. Zach, I see you hovering very close to the microphone. It seems like you must have some fun facts to spring on us. No, I, I just really wanted to spread a PSA, which is there are a lot of statistics in baseball, probably more statistics in baseball than any other sport. It has 
more than 100 years of history. It has more present-day stats than probably any other sport. You could spend a year just reading every active player's various baseball reference splits pages. But that doesn't mean all of those splits involve fun facts. And I think the more you slice and dice data, the less interesting the fact becomes. The more caveats you add, the less interesting the fact becomes. For instance, I saw a stat this week, not to call anyone out by name, that Vladimir Guerrero had accomplished a feat that no son of a five-time All-Star had ever done before. And that pricked my ears up because why five-time All-Star? Well, it turns out that, for instance... Barry Bonds and Ken Griffey Jr. were the sons of three-time All-Stars, and Bonds and Griffey had both accomplished that feat. Uh, Brett Boone, uh, his father, Bob, was a four-time All-Star, and I'm not sure if Brett Boone had accomplished that feat, but it's it possible. Was, it was leading the leading the leagues in, or leading the major leagues in home runs at the end of a day or something yeah. like that. So if you have to add that many layers to your stat, it's not as fun, and it's not as if there is a shortage of fun Vladimir Guerrero Jr. fun facts this year. He's been incredible. You could list 10 really great fun facts right now. You don't need to go to so many layers. Or, for instance, adding the first dot, dot, dot in the AL or the NL is a really great cop-out if something has happened you know, five times recently in the American League, but not for a while in the National League. You can just say, oh, yeah, it happened in yeah, the, for the first time in the National League. Tread lightly. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it is easy to to add layers to the point of meaninglessness. And that is my PSA to those Play Index subscribers, or should I say StatHead subscribers, uh, that you could add add statistical layers, but that doesn't necessarily make for better statistics. I don't necessarily disagree with the premise. I don't think facts necessarily become less fun the the more layers and, and caveats there are. I mean, I wrote down another Little Big League quote that's two in one show in the uh, please the do. That's Collins maybe is leading all right-handed yeah. American League hitters in batting average in dome stadiums against relievers he's facing for the first time after the seventh inning. So we got that going for us. Yeah, like See, that's my complaint, though, is that kind of stat, which uh, you hear that a lot of the time. I, I think there was one of those. I forget exactly what it was in the, the Simpsons Moneyball pastiche money Bart, where people kind of conflate sabermetrics or sabermetricians with that kind of trivia. And you guys are both trivia fiends. I have no problem with trivia. And if you want to come up with the, you know, what is he hit on day games against lefties in dome stadiums or whatever? Fine. But that is different from the way that we use stats generally or, or analysts of baseball use stats. And I think people kind of meld those things together where, yeah, we do have stats on everything in baseball, but a lot of those stats are useful and a lot of them are just really elaborate sort of jury rigged ways to get a tweet off basically that have no predictive value or anything like that, which is, you know, there's a place for that, I suppose. But sometimes it's just so taken to an extreme and it's so like gerrymandered that there is no place for it really. And I don't think anyone gets anything out of, of value out of it. You're so joyless sometimes. I can't stand it. Like, I agree that the that there's an important distinction to be made between trivia and statistics or, or arcana and predictive uh, quantitative analysis. But, like, I don't know. What is baseball if not the world's biggest trivia generator? 
Yeah, there's there's value to that. I I do think there is. It's just sometimes the stats are still terrible. <laughs> and sometimes it's so clear that you are just reaching for the fun fact that you are, you know, trying to exclude 10 other very similar examples so that you can end up with this one being the first or the first in X number of years. And it's clear that the fun fact is lying to you and you are being manipulated. And I don't find that fun. I think there is a point at which they become so absurd, they go all the way around yes. to being fun again. Like, if you go with, uh, to use a, another Griffey stat, like the fact that Stan Musial has the second most career home runs among players born in Denora, Pennsylvania on November 21st. On November t- left-handed yeah. hitting left-handed throwing yes. outfielders yeah, born in Denora, yeah. Pennsylvania like, on November 21st. That's a great one. Or, you know, if you wanted to to take the Vlad Jr. stats and say... You know, he's the first player like named Vladimir to do this certain thing. Like that would be fun and weird. But I think there's a middle ground where it seems like you're still trying to do a serious statistic and reveal something enlightening and it falls short. Yeah. Sometimes it's trolling. Sometimes it's intentional and sort of self-aware and winking, I think. And sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's just like a a genuine effort to come up with something and you really had nothing. And so you're totally stretching. And if it's clear, like if the person is in on the joke, then I'm fine with it, I think. But it's hard to tell. Like it's it's hard to tell where the line is sometimes because you see these things tweeted and it's like, okay, was this done with an awareness of the long legacy of fun facts like this that are just totally tortured? Or not, because if it's a joke, I get it. If it's serious, I guess it could still be funny unintentionally, but it's kind of confusing. This is probably the biggest argument you and I have had on this show following a little big league reference in a program where we've (laughs) recorded on Zoom and you have to get out early to catch a train. Uh, So out of respect to that, we're going to go straight to the unnamed weekend preview segment. I can't believe you referenced Little Big League and a train in the same sentence without referencing Walter Johnson. I can go back and do that again if you want. No, nah, leave it in. How. We okay. need we need to know you you left out the reference to maybe the world's greatest baseball. When movie. Jason Robards, his dad could have uh, he tried to what get Billy out to see Roger Clemens, and he could have seen Walter Johnson when he was a kid. Uh, yeah. All right, we've seen that movie too many times. Uh, Zach, I believe you were the one who who kicked off the uh, the list of of uh, weekend series that we're previewing. So why don't you go ahead and, and claim yours? It's a pretty good weekend. A lot of really fun pitching matchups. I am perhaps most interested in Padres Astros. The Padres and Dodgers have catapulted to the top of the NL West as the Giants uh, now keep losing to the Dodgers, whom they play this weekend again. But Padres Astros involves two teams that are probably favorites to make the playoffs at this point. And Hugh Darvish returns to Houston for the first time since the 2017 World Series. So I can't imagine there will be anything to talk about uh, with reference to that last occasion he pitched in Houston. Padres are playing well, even among a lot of injuries. And while Oakland is leading the AL West, they have a negative run differential still. So I would take Houston to defeat them at this point. 
And going up against Oakland on Friday is my man Shohei Otani. Traffic and public transit permitting, he will be making his first start since he suffered a pretty significant velocity loss in his previous start and still pitched pretty effectively, but scared everyone on Twitter half to death. And so there will be a lot of velocity watchers tuning into this game to see if this is something that persists or if it was just a fatigue-related blip. And of course, I hope that the latter will turn out to be true. Probably the pitching matchup I'm most looking forward to this weekend. Well, I, there are two, I guess. Uh, one of them is on Sunday. We don't get the Patrick Corbin versus Corbin Burns matchup in Brewers Nationals, uh, which is a bitter disappointment to me. But we do get Brandon Woodruff versus Max Scherzer. Uh, that's going to be an absolute barn burner. Also, on Saturday, Zach wrote this down. We get uh, Lance Lynn versus John Means, White mm-hmm. Sox Orioles. So I have to go call Mal and see if we can make a friendly wager about the outcome of this game. Um, so yeah, well, that's on Saturday, 14 out of 15. <laughs> so that's not great. I also want to shout out to Mike's pleasure, college sports, college baseball, college softball, a fun weekends. The division three tournament started yesterday and there was one game that ended 21 to 17. So we were talking about Belichick earlier and here's a football score for anyone who wants to watch really grainy webcam footage of division three baseball games that is where i will be seated for most of the weekend college baseball mike i do like that i spent years trying to get you guys into college baseball and zach you have just shot the moon and out hipstered me by leaps and bounds it's you and and the barbecue uh barbecue guys watching division three college baseball team allowed 16 hits and committed six errors and still won the game which really can only happen in college sports, I think. That will just about do it for this week's episode of the Bringer MLB Show. Be sure to follow us on Spotify, where you can get us on Friday, and Baseball Barbecue on on Tuesday. That's under the Ringer Baseball feed. Tell your friends, bring your family, bring your wife. Uh, Thank you to Zach. Thank you. Thank you, Ben. Thank you. Thanks to Bobby Wagner for producing today's episode. Thanks to Will Craig, Noah Syndergaard, and Joe Girardi for giving us stuff to talk about. And thank you for listening. Enjoy the long weekend's action, and everybody have a fun Memorial Day, and we'll see you next time. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. When I went on my last holiday to Cape Town, it was amazing. My friends were there, the weather was phenomenal, and most importantly, the food was fantastic. But one thing I struggled with was finding the right places to stay. You know, all I want is a great bed, a fantastic shower, and breakfast that doesn't end at 8 a.m. I'm on holiday, I'm still sleeping. I also like ease, and the Hotels.com app easily helps me to find a perfect hotel for every trip. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly getaway or a relaxing spa weekend, on the Hotels.com app, you can compare up to five hotels side-by-side. Now, why would you want to do that? So you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings. And best of all, you don't have to switch back and forth between options. See? Ease. So, start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. 
You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.